The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we do say, blessed be your name. When times are filled with abundance and blessing and when times are difficult and hard, your name is worthy of being praised. You're full of power and you are good. Lord, our hearts sometimes don't believe that. Lord, would you today use your word to convince us a little bit more about your character, about your compassionate, steadfast love, about your mighty control. And would you call out of us, out of our hearts, a a genuine blessing of your name, an affection for you that triumphs over all other affections, a devotion to you that is resolute, steadfast. Call that out of us this morning, Lord. Give life to our hearts by your word. For those here, Lord, who are your children, would you encourage them, remind them of the truths that you have worked into them. And for those here who are not yet your children, would you call them in? Father, be at work here in in numerous different ways, depending on where we all are coming from. Lord, I have no idea where we're all coming from, but we all stand in need of you. So, Father, would you commission the Spirit to fall on us in clear, strong ways? Work out your good and sovereign will in our midst. Save. Sanctify. Open eyes. Give life. Father, please do that and call forth from us a blessing for your name. To the glory of Christ, I pray it. Amen. I was watching Nightline this last week and they did a story on a Miami real estate broker and investor. A couple years ago, he was worth $20 million. And today, he's $12 million in debt. That's quite a swing. $32 million swing. And you can imagine him, as, as all of that wealth is melting away in front of his eyes, you can imagine him stewing there in anxiety and anger, frustration, confusion, pressure mounting. You can imagine that, but you'd have to imagine it because that's not how he was. At least it didn't seem that way. He seemed very calm about the whole thing. Now, it was TV, so maybe he was putting on a face, I'm not sure, but it, it seemed real. He seemed to be at peace about it. When the interviewer asked him, how is it, sir, that you can be so calm, so at peace about this disaster? Listen to what he responded, and I'm paraphrasing this, but listen to this. He says, yeah, I'm $12 million in debt. Lost a couple of houses already. I have five more homes that are in foreclosure. But the market will come back. It has to. I think it's going to take a year or two. So I'm going to be patient. I have money to eat off of in the meantime, and I'm going to be okay. Did you hear that? What's he saying there? He's saying, I'm going to lose these houses. I've already lost a few. They're going. The bank's going to suck up the debt, they're going to pass it on to the government, the government's going to give them more money, 
they'll begin to lend that money again. People will start buying houses again. I'm back in business. I'm going to be okay. It may take a little bit, but I'm going to be fine. That's why I'm not afraid. And he's probably right. Odds are, he's right. But notice, he's okay, he's at peace, he's at rest because he's rooted that peace in a change in the circumstances that have temporarily troubled him. But what happens when you can't change the circumstances? What happens when the pressure keeps coming and coming and coming? We're not talking about hanging there, it's going to be over by next Tuesday or or by next year, and then you're going to be back to normal and all fine. When it is relentless and there is no bailout in sight, the circumstances are not changing. Can you find peace and rest, a refuge for your heart in that circumstance, in that situation? That's what we're going to be thinking about today in Psalm 62. So we continue on with the second book of the Psalms and looking at the theme of affliction. We're not just about acquainting ourselves with some ancient poems and songs. Stuff that's nice to, to understand. We're actually we're looking at these things looking for help. For God-given assistance in dealing with trouble and affliction when it comes in life. That song captures life so well because sometimes the sun shines, your health holds, you have money in your pocket. If you've got kids, they're all above average. Marriage, it's working out really splendidly. Your parents are still together. People like you at school. All the top colleges in the land desperately want you. Sometimes life is like that. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes trouble comes and the the clouds roll in, the circumstances change. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is what life is like here in this fallen world. And in part, one of the reasons, in part to help us deal with that, God has given us the Psalms. There are other reasons he's given them to us, but that's one of the reasons to help us deal with trouble and affliction. Circumstances that we can't change or we don't know if they're going to change and our hearts are in turmoil. Can you find rest then? God's given us the Psalms, not just to change circumstances, but better than that, to change us. To fasten us back to Him, a rock, a refuge when everything out there is falling apart. And Psalm 62 fits right in that theme. It's right on that agenda. God speaking to people, pointing us back to Him. So I'm going to read Psalm 62, then we're going to pass back through to make sure that we understand it, and then I'm going to make a couple of observations. Let me read Psalm 62, verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock 
and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Psalm 62. The passage begins with a statement of totality. And this idea of totality is an idea that runs all through the first six verses like a thread. Five of the first six verses in the original language begin with the word alone. It could be translated only. It's repeating something here. Only for God my soul waits. Only he is my rock. There's a, a totality of focus here. The psalmist is concerned that we zero in on God only. Now, when he says, I'm waiting in silence, he doesn't mean audible silence, like he's not speaking or not saying anything. He's talking about silence in the heart, in the soul, contrasted with a, a noisy heart that's, that's in turmoil. As you're looking at, at things out there, your heart's doing this. It's running, and it's racing, and it's, it's scheming, it's planning, it's thinking, and it's, it's anxiety is pressing in on it, and, and you're wondering and fearing. The opposite of that is still water. Silence. In silence, I wait upon the Lord. Only. And he needs to wait in silence on the Lord because, verses 3 and 4, there are attacks out there. He needs a fortress because he needs to be protected in here because there's stuff out there that's threatening him in here. There are enemies. And again, as usual, the details are, are rather vague here. Seen repeatedly through the Psalms, there, there are often enemies or afflictions of some sort, and you get little clues about what they might be in this particular case, but they're broad enough to put a whole bunch of things in there. Here, the righteous man, the psalmist, is facing some sort of persistent affliction. Notice, how, notice his question of how long is this going to go on? It's relentless. How long are you going to batter a man? You're pressing against me, something out there, some enemy pressing against me. I'm, I'm hard-pressed like a tottering fence, about to fall over. This is a trying thing for him. Verse 4 emphasizes treachery and deceit. They love falsehood, seem on the outside to be blessing him. And inside, they're full of cursing. So part of the threat is that he doesn't really understand the threat. There's a lot of trickery and deception going on here. It's hard-pressed time for him. He's under affliction. Maybe it's physical or interpersonal. Maybe it's gossip or a political intrigue. It's not clear. But from the Bible's perspective, remember we talked about this before, there are two levels of threat. There's the first level that's the actual physical thing going on, which we don't really know what it is. 
An example we could use would be like a famine or a plague or a plot to overthrow the king. There's something going on out there, but the real danger is what's beneath that. The threat to the righteous person's heart. These first-level dangers provide an opportunity for a wedge to be driven in between the righteous person and God. Famine comes, and obviously you've got to deal with food, but the real danger is that you'll begin to wonder about God, to doubt Him, to think, how did you do this? Are you present? Are you listening? Do you care? From the Bible's perspective, because the spiritual realm is so critical, that is the critical attack. That's the real threat within the threat. So we need to realize that and kind of keep it clear in our own lives too. We face threats that provide opportunity for threats. And these are the ones to watch for, that we not be driven, that a wedge not be driven between us and God. Selah. Put a little pause in there. We've seen this term before. It's the, the poetic t- way of saying, pause for a second and think about that. Let that rest on you. In life, we are hard-pressed facing affliction. Selah. What does he do with that then? He's in danger of falling, so, verse 5, he talks to himself. And this should look a little familiar to you from what we saw in Psalm 42 and 43, where the psalmist takes himself and begins to instruct himself. Notice how similar these verses are to verses 1 and 2. Many words are repeated here. Salvation and fortress, rock. It's a great example of the righteous person taking the truth of the scripture and speaking it to himself. He's hiding in this fortress. He's hard-pressed, so he says to himself, Self, listen. God is the fortress. He's your refuge. He's the one that brings you glory, that is, esteem, significance. He's the one that saves you. So self, he is your refuge. This is the psalmist preaching this to himself. And then verse 8, he turns and preaches it to us. Trust him. Oh, people, at all times, we don't have the word only or alone here, but the same thread of totality, trust him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. Give yourself in totality to him always. People, he is your refuge. Psalm is saying he's my refuge and he's your refuge too. Pour out your heart before him. Trust him. Verses 9 and 10, and don't trust anything else. There's a lot of stuff in the world that draws us after it, that tempts us to seek out a refuge, a protection, a hope in it. Particularly, the one he zeroes in on here, money. Money for us is, is as common as water, in the sense of what we seek hope in and protection in. Provides a certain bit of power. You can control some of your destiny with money. And so we chase after it. But the psalmist is, is reminding us again, we've seen this a couple weeks ago. We saw this a couple weeks ago. He's reminding us again it's a delusion. Verse 9 it doesn't matter if the, the man of, of low estate or of high estate uses this idea of a balance. You put the man of high estate in the balance, chunk. All the weights over here. He goes up. Low estate, chunk. 
Put them all in there, chunk. doesn't matter. It's all like a breath of air. There's no significance in it. It's a delusion, he says. We look at the wealthy, the powerful, the influential, the strong, and we say, wow. Like a breath of air. It's a delusion. We realize this when you get the flu. Big, strapping, 30-year-old male athlete with the flu and can't get out of bed. Little bug lays him low. Doesn't matter how much money he has, he can't stop it. Can't do anything about it. Wealth, power, and influence. A delusion. You realize that when you get the flu? You realize that when you stand at the gravesite. It all perishes. So, verse 10, three times, put no trust in it. It's a vain hope. Don't set your heart on it. No matter if you came by it illicitly or, or legally. doesn't matter. Don't hope in it. And then he concludes, verses 11 and 12, calling us back to what we are to hope in. And he sets this up, this, this closing statement, once God has spoken, twice I have heard it. God said something, I've heard it, and I've thought it through. Here's his concluding statement. Power belongs to God. To God belongs rule. There's one person in charge, God. There's not power like divvied up amongst many other entities. Power belongs only to Him. And you know what else belongs to Him? Steadfast love. Abiding, never-ending, compassionate, merciful love rests in Him. That's a good thing that the one on the throne is full of love. And lastly, he renders to every man and every woman according to what he has done. We need to keep that verse in its context. What he's saying there is he's just. He has power, he has love, and he is just. We need to keep it right there in the context, remembering what he's dealing with. Because if you take that little half verse out of its context, as people have done, You can make it to say something like, we have to earn our salvation. See how the reasoning goes. He gives the people what they deserve. If you want to be saved, you better deserve it. So work to merit eternal life. People do that. You can't do that. though. It's in a context. Read it in the context. He's hard-pressed by an enemy who is deceiving and scheming and assaulting him. And what he is saying is, God is in charge, God has love, and God will sort it all out at the end and make justice come about. So I will entrust myself to him who judges justly, who perfectly sorts it out at the end. That's his conclusion. So, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. That's who God is. Wait on him. That's the passage for today. Psalm 62. I'm going to make a couple of two, I'm going to make two overarching observations here and then tie them together into a sentence at the end, a summary sentence at the end. I have to begin with what God has done here. There's a marvelous and gracious work of God 
Psalm 62 points out for us. Let me give it to you here. In Christ, God has made of himself a refuge. In Christ alone, God has made of himself. He has made himself to be a refuge. A shelter for afflicted and troubled people. Suffering in a fallen world, hard-pressed, with hope evaporating, running out between their fingers like sand. And he has made himself to be a refuge for people in Christ. This is a glorious thing he has done. The marvelous thing. If you live long enough, you're going to face trial in this life. Part and parcel of living here. Acts of nature, sin of other people, sometimes self-inflicted sin. I'm young. I've experienced some of this myself. Some of you are much older and you can nod your heads and say, yes, all you have to do is keep putting years under your belt and you're going to run into trouble and affliction. That is the case. That's what life is like here. The other shoe will drop eventually. The economy will collapse. You'll lose your job. You'll lose your one and only house. Friends will turn away from you. You won't get into college. Something like that's always happening. And when it does, when that kind of trouble arises, what follows right on its heels is a secondary but more important threat A wedge arises that might be driven into your heart to separate you from God. Anxiety rises up and you begin to wonder and doubt and you begin to search everywhere else in all the resources of the world to try to fix this problem and what you've done accidentally, perhaps, is walked away from Him. What do you do when the chemo doesn't work? When your spouse won't change? When the car accident produces a lifelong disability, or worse. What do you do then? Gloriously. I mean, you got to think, it is so easy for us, if you haven't experienced that kind of affliction, or you aren't at the very moment experiencing that kind of affliction, it's easy to kind of think, this is nice, helpful for other people. This is real for us. And when you see it's real for us and your need for a refuge that's real, then the glory of this rises up. God has done something amazing. He has made himself to be a refuge, the kind that we need, a shelter from the storm, not an eliminator of storms, a shelter within the storm. Twice in this passage, he says, so I am a refuge, verse 7 and 8. And he piles on all these other words, rock, salvation, fortress. God himself, God himself is a rock, solid, towering fortress. He's not a teetering wall. He's a towering fortress within which we can hide to be protected. It's like a father saying to a little child, come here, there's a danger out there. Come here. Pushes him behind. I'll take care of this. And then faces out. And you peer around from behind to look out there. And he's just got a hand holding you back here as he faces it. He's that kind of a rock, of a fortress for you. Mighty. One who can be the anchor for your heart. To him belongs 
power. And to him belongs love. He bids you, children, come to me. The reason I shelter you is because I am steadfastly loving towards you. My heart is large. You are my precious inheritance. Come. I want to wrap my arms around you and comfort you and bless you. Sovereign control matched to omnipotent love. It chases away all that would do evil to you. He thwarts it. It is omnipotent love. This is a good and glorious God who has made himself to be this kind of a refuge for you. I am your refuge, he says. It is a beautiful offer. Rest in me in quietness and heart. Come and trust in me. Pour out your heart before me. It is a beautiful offer and a command. It is a glorious offer. It is what you need and what you must do. It's God and the psalmist's goal, obviously, is that we would trust him completely. The theme of totality. Alone, 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 alone. Always poured out. And we say, often, no thanks. Uh, thanks, but no thanks. I'll shelter myself. I'll defend, protect myself, I'll, I'll save myself, thank you. I'll, I'll find my own refuge. There's surely one out here somewhere. I'll find it. I'll make it. I'm competent. I'm capable. I have resources. Which leaves us in a terrible predicament. Still vulnerable because none of that shelters us. The best we do is hope in circumstantial change. And that all fails in the end. It leaves us still vulnerable and worse still, we have offended the only refuge there is. And have become his enemy. And all those for whom God would be a refuge, he is now a scourge. He holds out his arms and we reject him, which is the highest of sin. We say no to our Creator and Lord and walk away from Him towards things that are just a puff of air but astonishingly, astonishingly appear more trustworthy and more satisfying than He Himself. And because He renders to each man according to His works, that's a problem for us. We all do that. Maybe to help you put your finger on it in your life, let me tell you what it looks like in mine. Over the last couple of months, I realized this going on in me. As I'm not facing any particular grand threat, but just constant pressing in. I'm feeling a little bit like I'm, I'm just constantly leaned against and starting to teeter perhaps. And my heart's getting noisy, although I didn't notice it getting noisy, it's unsettled, it's lacking rest. And so I start looking and looking and looking. And here's what I do. I go to the internet. 
innocent stuff on the internet, just to alleviate that. <laughs> I'm reading MSNBC, reading all the news, you know, all the links, chasing down various sites related to my particular hobbies. Some of them shopping, some of them articles I read. I read the same articles all the time. I look at the same stuff in the shopping areas all the time. I don't buy anything, but I look and I look and I look. Again and again for an hour. For days. For weeks. What's going on there? I'm looking for satisfaction. I'm looking for rest. For some little bit of pick-me-up that'll make me feel good. For some of you, it's alcohol or ice cream or golf or coffee with a friend or a phone call to a friend. You're going out here to look for the thing that will give me rest, quiet my heart in here, and you know what? It does not work. That's why it builds in me for months, that it never quenches it. It just builds and builds and builds and builds. I'm wandering out here. Hope, verse, verse 5, For God alone, Steve's soul, wait in silence. Mm. I did that in my quiet time. Verse 8, trust in him, Steve, at all times. Pour out your heart before him. And so this is a very odd psalm. Because what it calls for ends up condemning us. Because it's so total. If it just said, make God one of the things you hope in, we'd be fine. But it's not. It's total. Alone. Alone. One and two and four and five and seven and eight. Only. Alone. Pour it out. Always. I'm so far from that and so are you that it ends up condemning us. But on the other hand, what it holds out is beautiful and we desperately need it. And it's a glorious work of God that He's made it possible. God himself wrapping his arms around me to protect me. And yet I run away from it. But yet it's optimistic, saying that it will happen. What? This is an odd psalm. What's going on here? It, there's condemnation here and there's great hope here. There's a refuge. He is your refuge. Always, and that which I don't do. How do these things go together? And it's at this point that the glory of Christ rises up and shines over this psalm as he alone provides a bridge over the condemnation into the fortress of God. Let's come at it like this. Who is it, really? Who is it that when attacked and hard-pressed when reviled and schemed against and cursed and deceived, battered all the day long, did not revile. When suffering did not threaten, but instead continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What's First Peter 3 pointing to when it says that? Who lived a life of constant affliction? 
knowing every turmoil like we do. Pressed, tempted, battered throughout all of his life as enemies sought to bring him down from his exalted position. And through it all, in God alone, in perfect silence, always waited. His heart perfectly, constantly set upon this single hope, God the Father, my rock and my salvation, at rest, even while led to the cross, silent like a sheep led to slaughter. He spreads out his arms, doesn't run away, spreads out his arms and takes it because his heart is set on something else. For the joy set before him, he endures the cross. The joy, not just of acquiring a people, but the joy of the Father's approval. Well done, good and faithful servant. Sinlessly, perfectly, the only one who can pray Psalm 62 in full honesty. Who is that? Obviously, Jesus. Jesus alone perfectly fulfilled Psalm 62 and then Jesus alone stood or hung in the place of all those who themselves could never overcome Psalm 62's requirements but who desperately need Psalm 62's offer. Jesus perfectly fulfills it, has no sin of his own, goes to the cross and takes God's wrath upon him in the place of me who refused to seek shelter in him. He takes upon himself the punishment due me, and so when the Father now looks at me, or at you if you will trust him, when the Father looks at him, he sees the obedience of Christ and says, this one is righteous, come here, and puts us behind him to face the world. God poured out his sin, his sin punishment, on his son, that he might look on me with the son's righteousness. You see what's going on. Without the cross, there is no hope for you in Psalm 62. With the cross, there is. This is the great exchange. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, trusting in him at all times, finding him to be a refuge. In Christ alone, God has become a refuge for you, which should cause your heart to sing. There's a refuge available to you. It should cause your heart to sing and to be thankful to Him and to praise Him for sending His Son, to love and to hope in Christ. Which takes us to the second observation. There are two ways to respond to this. When you find that the Father's arms are opened to you because the Son's arms were opened on the cross, there are two ways to respond. One positively and one negatively. Positively speaking, set your soul on this refuge. Negatively speaking, and beware of the temptation towards all false ones. So that's my second observation. Set your soul on this refuge and beware of the temptation towards all false ones. And that temptation is constant in life. That's what verses 9 and 10 are pressing upon us. 
We have hearts that are prone to wander, focusing on the, the root of it. He points out money. But there's plenty of other stuff, as I was trying to point out with all the internet things that draw me. We are constantly prone to very subtle temptations, usually very subtle temptations. Satan is real, and he is smart. He never walks up and knocks on your door and says, today I will lead you away from God. Follow me. Never says that. And I'm doing that because I hate you and want to destroy you. Never says that. He very subtly sidles up next to you and says, hey, check this out. This will satisfy you. Here's hope. God, yep, whatever. Pursue this. Chase that. A little more of this will help. Pile these things up. That'll protect you. And it will surely all work out in the end. That's how he works. Some of us here don't even believe he exists, which is testimony to how subtle he is and how smart he is. Don't trust it. It's vain hope. Don't set your heart on it. Christian, this is you. Your heart is just as slippery as anybody else's. The world and Satan are just as cunning when it interacts with you as with anybody else. This is your heart. Guard it. Watch out for the temptation to wander, to seek shelter and protection and hope in other things. The wedge is being driven in. And you're being split away from him. Watch out for that. You might notice it in your life when you find trouble coming and you sense the anxiety rising in you. Fear rising in you. Or perhaps it's not fear. Perhaps it's a, it's a, a, a blitz of activity as you move towards your omnicompetency. I know what to do to fix this. This and this and this and this and this and this and this. Sorted it out, done. What you did was you trusted in your own abilities. And maybe it worked out. Maybe the bailout comes. Maybe the circumstances do change. The wedge was still driven in between you and God. And you've been led out a little further on the limb, a little further. And the limb will break one day. And you'll wonder where the trunk is. Christian, guard your heart. Watch out for the subtle temptation to set your hope on the resources of the world. But I know there are some folks here today who are not Christians. I don't know everybody here, but I'm sure that there are. This is your heart too. Your heart is just as slippery as mine is. My hope and my prayer is that God would open your eyes that you would see this. You would see what you are wandering out towards and grabbing hold of to try to satisfy and to secure your life. And realize just how far out there you've gotten. Verse 8 is true. God is a refuge God is the only refuge. To him belongs strength, he's the judge. And to him belongs steadfast love. And to him belongs justice. 
He promises you, come to me, I will be a refuge for you. If you come to me through Christ, that's the only way. So I plead with you, trust him. Trust him. And notice how irrational your rejection of him is. There's no hope in circumstances changing. But we trust it anyway, don't we? It's irrational. Something in your heart is leading you towards that and leading you away from God. Beware of that. And positively speaking, set your hope on this refuge. It's interesting to notice the difference between verses 1 and 2 and verses 5 and 6. 1 and 2 is a statement. 5 and 6 is a a command. 1 and 2, he's declaring something that is. And 5 and 6, he's talking to himself about something he must do. And there's something important in that. We must be active with ourselves. I've said, set your hope on. Set your heart on this refuge. Turn yourself. Don't just sit out here passively and see if you get turned or not. You won't be. Let's take hold of yourself, as the psalmist does here. My soul, speaking to himself, here's where you go. Here's where the refuge is. Go to him. Turn, pour out your heart before him and say, Help. I need you. Help. Rest in God alone. The affliction comes and your wandering heart wants to run off. You want to leave behind all the stuff that you know. Leave it in the, in the, the pile of nice theology. You've got to grab yourself at the door and say, No, I'm, I'm not going out. I'm going to stay here and pour out your heart before him. And sure shooting, your heart will say, Why? That doesn't make any sense to me. And right there you're at a decision. Who do you believe? Yourself or the Word of God? And the strong temptation for all of us is to believe ourselves, which is really interesting because that right there should point out something to you. You're at the center of your own world. You're the authority. God gives a command that is also an offer. Trust me. I am full of love. Trust me. I will cover your sin in my son's cross. Trust me. So you tell your soul, that's why. I don't understand everything, but I understand the historical fact of the crucifixion and the resurrection. The historical fact of a man who claimed to be God, who claimed to be the one who forgives sin, was crucified and three days later rose from the dead. A historical fact. Why did that happen? Only so that God's loving forgiveness could come to human beings. But you've got to enter into an argument with your soul about this. Because something in you wants to run off. So you tell yourself, here's why. Because the tomb was empty. 
There's love there that I don't understand everything, but I understand that much. The tomb was empty, and God has shown me his love, promised to forgive me. I'm going to hope in him. So whether you're a Christian or not, I plead with you, talk to yourself. People will think you're crazy maybe, but whisper. Talk to yourself and say, self, here's where hope is. Go there. Take yourself in hand and take yourself to the cross and hope in him. You have to preach that to yourself and then enlist a friend to preach it to you too because you have an enemy who does not want you to believe it. Set your soul on that refuge and beware of the temptation towards all false ones. Let me tie these two things together. God in Christ is a refuge for us. So... Come to him through Christ and rest. God in Christ is a refuge for us. So come to him through Christ and rest. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.